Hey guys, we are in the book of Luke, and so if you are a guest with us, i just let you know we try to take books of the Bible and go through them, so we've been in this book for a little bit, but uh, we land ourselves in Luke chapter 9, uh, not because I have some agenda or trying to get at anybody, it's just where we come into the uh, passage, uh, the book of Luke We have preached all the way up through Luke chapter 9 verse 17 and so today I will pick up at 18 and go through verse 27. So Luke chapter 9 verses 18 through 27. If you don't have a Bible there should be one on a row near you and so it'll probably help if you have one can open it up and follow along. We'll have a lot on the screen behind me but it's good to have God's word open so that you can kind of know where we are as we walk through many of these verses together. So I'm going to read here, and then after that, I'll pray and we will go at it. So I'm actually just going to read a small portion of the passage, verses 23 through 27, uh, but we will go verses 18 through 27 for the sermon. The Word of God reads as such, verse 23, And he... That is, Jesus said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses loses or forfeits himself or his soul. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Let me pray. Father, we ask that in these moments you would carry us along and that you would instruct us by your Holy Spirit. I pray that where there is discouragement that you would encourage, where there is doubt that you would grant faith, where there are questions, the questioning heart would be humble. And that, Father, you would meet everyone where they are. That, Father, you would transform them and transform myself that we might look more like you. Please come. Come in power. Encourage us in these moments that we might treasure you more, love one another with you, and leave here as lives sent out to love others. I pray for your help now. In Jesus' name, amen. So I remember when my wife and I first got married that we were one year in. I mean, one uh, week in. We had just come off of our honeymoon, and we go to our apartment. The apartment was off of Madonna Circle, right next to Skate Town, USA. If it sounds sketchy, it was. The walls were paper thin. We were choking on our neighbor's smoke regularly. But it was our home. We were thankful for it. It's all we could afford. So we jump into Madonna Circle. And as we kind of 
take all of our belongings and start to pack them in our apartment after our one-week-old marriage, we had our first argument, and it was serious. It was over where would the coffee pot go? Serious. Life and death. So, of course, I thought, makes total sense exactly where it's going to go. It's going to go right here on the counter next to the outlet. No doubt, no doubt at all. She, too, was thinking this kitchen is the place that I'll be able to organize. It's the first time I've been able to be married and have a kitchen. And so I've got my spot where everything is going to go. And didn't quite work out that way. Well, the conversation kept going from room to room. What, like, where does the couch go? Where does the table go? Where? And so finally I realized something as we began to set up our home. And it was this. That I had entered into a relationship where I was beginning to lose control. And every single relationship of depth and meaning is a relationship where you are beginning to lose control. It is a surrendering when you commit to someone else of saying it's my way or the highway. And any relationship that doesn't surrender control, that isn't flexible, isn't pursuing love or commitment is a toxic and many times abusive relationship. Nothing you want to be a part of. And so, the relationship that Jesus is inviting us into in this moment is a relationship where we get to relate to Him, but it is a surrendering of control. It is a saying, I want to serve you, and it is the belief that He is going to serve and to lavish love upon me, and yet there's something even more different about this relationship. Jesus in this relationship is not just an authority, he is the authority. An authority who is completely infallible and who will never lead one astray. So when you jump into this relationship, it is a sense of like a person who signs up for the military. When you go into the military, you don't get to play suggestion to the general, you follow the commands. It is, you do this, and this is how long you will do it, and in what way you will do it. Because the authority structure is clear. And when we jump into this passage, we begin to see that what Jesus is calling us into is both a relationship where he promises to pursue us for our good and to love us with all that he is. And therefore, we are loosening control and falling into that relationship. But we are not just releasing, releasing part control. We're releasing all that we are because he is perfectly good. A perfectly good instructor. And when I say authority, it's sometimes it's almost like I just cussed at you because it's like, no way. I'm competent. I can handle these things. But God says the greatest security is found when we fully submit to his authority. And parents, you need to remember this. Your children will flounder around in insecurity when the rules constantly change and the boundaries constantly move because security is found in knowing where the boundaries are and the one who implements the boundaries being good and loving. This is our God, 
and our God who invites us to follow him with our lives. Where do I get that? Look at verse 23. It says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and what? Say it out loud. Okay, that was, that was pretty weak. Okay, I'll try it again. Um, if anyone would come after me, let him, take him, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and... Yeah, maybe I've been a part of camp too long, but you know, there was a lot of shouting that happened during camp week. So forgive me if I pressed a little hard there. Follow me. The question that Jesus gives to us is what does it look like to follow me? And I think he lays out four things. Here's what Jesus means when he says, follow me. It means that we are this kind of people. It means that we are a desperately praying, Christ-confessing, self-denying, cross-embracing people. I didn't say person, we're not individuals, we're saved into a community, and we need one another to be this type of follower. But what type of follower is Jesus inviting us into when he says, follow me? It is a desperately praying, Christ-confessing, self-denying, cross-embracing follower of Christ. And so let's dive in, and let's see what he's asking When he says those beautiful, yet sometimes intimidating words, follow me. We begin in verse 18, where I I believe he is laying down a pattern of a follower of Jesus as a desperately praying follower. We look at verse 18 and it says, Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. Now let's make sure we got the scene. So Jesus has just finished a really long day. Have you had a long day at work before? Been really tired? Okay, he's just fed over 5,000 men plus women and children. And that was towards the end of what was already a long day of serving and loving on people. And so he got to the end of that day. He's tired. And now what we see, though, is he goes by himself alone to pray and his disciples are with him. Why does he do that? Why does he pray? Because... Jesus, being fully God, also came down and clothed himself with humanity. That means he had humanity's weakness. He had humanity's limits. He was only able to be in one place at one time. He wasn't everywhere. This was Jesus, and so he knew he needed to pray. He knew he needed to hear from his Father so that he would know how to act. We see this regularly in the book of Luke. Where is Jesus praying? Luke sets it up and shows us that he is praying at the beginning of pretty much most major events as you go through the book. When it came to Jesus' baptism, there is prayer. When there was a selection of the twelve, Jesus stopped and prayed. Here in this passage, when, when Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, Peter is being prayed for by Jesus. The Transfiguration, which is next week's sermon. You see it's preceded by prayer. When Jesus teaches on the Lord's Prayer, he precedes it with prayer. And when Peter denies him three times, Jesus says that he is praying for Peter so that his faith would not give up. Jesus is constantly praying because he wants to be near to his Father, wants to hear his voice, and so that he would obey perfectly. What does prayer indicate? Well, let's take the picture. 
Let's say we're going hiking together, okay? We're going hiking and we're walking up this trail together and you observe that I'm a little fatigued. Feels like the backpack looks a little heavy, sweating a little much, feet aren't picking up so you're tripping over roots. And so you come to me and you say, hey, Sean, can I help you a little bit here? Um, you look, look a little tired. I'd be happy to help carry something. And me and all my competence, I say, no, I need no help because I can do this on my own. So I grip a little harder, obviously a little embarrassed that I looked a little sluggish, denying my weaknesses. And I keep walking. And the next thing I know, my foot slips. And there is a significant ravine to my right. And I fall. And the only thing that I can hold on to, as my backpack falls, my canteen falls, everything begins to fall. I'm holding on to one branch. And at that moment, what do you think I do? I yell is what I do. Good night. Help me. Right? Right? Why would I yell? Why would I yell for help in that moment? Because I'm desperate. Because I'm desperate. I didn't want people to see I was weak before. I didn't want to appear desperate or needy before. But there was an undeniable reality when I'm hanging on the side of the ravine. I am now desperate. And what do desperate people do? They call out. Jesus is found in these moments saying, I need to hear from my Father. I need to be near Him and I want to walk with Him. Desperate people pray. And here's the issue for us. We're doubly desperate. We not only need to hear the Father's voice, but we are sinners. Separated from Him. We're cloudier even in our judgment because sin has clouded things. And we forget how desperate we really are. And what happens is when things go well, we seem pretty confident, pretty competent in ourselves. Look at what we have done. We lean on humanity and we just say, look at how great we are. Until all of a sudden some circumstance changes, some pain enters in, we experience some suffering and loss. And then all of a sudden we're not so confident anymore. And the ground begins to shake and the foundation begins to crack. And what you do in those moments determines who you worship. You call out. Some sadly begin to call out to themselves as if they can get themselves out of it. Be stronger, be better. And God says, no, this pain in your life is that you might believe who you are all the time. And that is desperate. You're desperate. You're hanging at all times. But the good news is, he has you. And he will never let you go. Desperate people. That's the foundation for a follower of Jesus. Desperate people pray. And why does he want us praying? Because we ask and he gives and the giver gets the glory. But also because we get to relate to our father. He loves it when you talk to him. He loves it. He loves being the giver of every good and perfect gift of yours. And he loves that you talk to him. Every relationship that you love, you love in part because there's a conversation. There's a dialogue. There's a listening. There's a receiving. There's a giving. Our Father loves it when you share your mess and your tears and your fears and your anxieties and your questions. Share everything. That's why Psalm 119 verse 18 says this. With my whole heart I seek you. 
Let me not wander from your commands. Desperate people seek God. They take everything to him. And that's the foundation of following Jesus. Now it's really interesting. Look at what it says. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, he was with his disciples. Anybody else find that a little odd? Is he alone or is he with his disciples? Yes, that's exactly what he is. He's alone with his disciples. I think this is massive encouragement for the mom who is about ready to pull her hair out because she can't get alone time and her kids are all around. Jesus has the ability that even in the midst of chaos and in the midst of crisis, he can be alone with his father in conversation and yet there still be people around him. We have no idea what was happening with these disciples, but they were within earshot. He's able to ask them a question coming out of prayer. And I want to encourage you that God wants you to be alone with him and to find solitude. But he's also saying that there is a way that you can be with God even when you're with others. At work, with God, yet with others. It's not just, I have to go find a bathroom stall so I can get away from everybody and try to hide in while I'm at work. Or I have to go into this closet and shut and lock the door. That is needed many times. But you can be with the Lord even when you're with people. I thought it was a beautiful example. Followers of Jesus are desperately praying people, but they also are Christ-confessing people. Look at what Jesus asked the followers in verse 18 at the end. And so Jesus, while he was praying, he stops his prayer and he asks them, Who do the crowds say that I am? Verse 19, And they answered, John the Baptist. Others say, It's... He's Elijah, and others say he's a prophet that's risen from a fold. And so then he asks them, and he says, then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? The you is plural there. Like if you're from Chicago, use guys. If you're from around here, maybe y'all. That's who he's talking to. He's talking to everybody. And then Peter, as he normally does, puts himself as the spokesman, and he speaks up, and here's what he says. Who are you? You're the Christ of God. Matthew's account says, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. Who is he declaring Jesus to be? He is saying, you're the one I've been waiting for. You're the one that not just me, but all the Jewish people have been longing for. The one who will take away sin. The one who will make wrongs right. The one who will bring a kingdom in. You're the one. You're the Messiah, the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, why does Jesus ask him the question? And here's the reason. Because change comes through proclamation. Change comes when we say true things out loud. And if you don't believe me, let's follow the Bible. Genesis chapter 3. When Adam and Eve, who were naked and unashamed... Now all of a sudden sin, rebel against God, they are naked and ashamed. And what happens? When you sin, you experience shame. When you experience shame, you go into hiding. Adam and Eve went and hid. God is found walking around the garden, asking for where they are. Why? Because he doesn't know? No, he knows fully where they are. It is this sense of you should not be in hiding. The shame begins to be more and more clear. And then he asks them, who told you? That you were naked. 
And why are you ashamed? Who told you this? He knew the answer to that. What did he want? He wanted them to be able to articulate. They are sinners. They rebelled. This is the picture we begin to see in Psalm 32. Psalm 32 paints a beautiful picture and yet a painful one of what happens when we sin. Here's the picture. When someone holds sin in and isn't willing to say they're a sinner, here's the picture. It says, your bones are found wasting away. These are the feelings you have. It says it feels as if there's a heavy hand of burden upon your shoulders. And then he says, it's as if my strength had dried up in the heat of a summer day. We've had several of those really hot days where humidity like smacks you in the face when you walk outside. And if you're out in it long enough, why am I so tired? This is the description of those who are hiding in their shame. How do you get out? Verse 5 of Psalm 32 says, I will confess my sin to the Lord. I will acknowledge it before him and he will forgive me of my sin. Forgiveness comes through confession. As one pastor, Jeff Vanderstelt, said, you know someone is coming out of hiding when they confess their sins out loud. It's through confession that there is transformation. That's why Jesus looks at Peter and says, who do you say that I am? The Psalms are filled. You can almost open up any Psalm at all and it says, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His mercy endures forever. Recount his wondrous deeds. Psalm 96, 96 says, Ascribe to the Lord glory. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. What's that mean? It means say out loud how good God is. That will do something in your heart. Why do we sing? We sing because we need to say true things about God and ask like crazy that God would get our heart and align it with him. I'm like you. I don't always believe that or feel that. I sing it because I need it. And I want God to take those truths and ram it into my heart. And just move it from, yeah, I know facts. I can fact you all day long. But God wants the heart. And he calls us to follow him. Not just with actions, but with all that we are. And that's why followers are Christ confessors. That's why he gave us a great commission that says, go into all the world and proclaim Christ. We are proclaimers. And that's why on the last day, when we're gathered around the throne together, and all wrongs have been made right, we will be proclaiming that the Lamb was slain. And by his blood, he had ransomed a people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, and family. We will be singing for all eternity. And our joy will be increasing because he gets the glory through the proclamation and we get the help. That is the beauty of following Jesus. People are changed when Christ is proclaimed. Followers of Jesus not only are desperately praying people and Christ confessing people, but they are self-denying people. Self-denying people. In verse 21... Jesus says, and he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. <laughs> I just made one of the biggest deals in the world about telling it to everyone. 
And he just says, tell it to no one. Do you find that a little ironic? What is this about? What's he saying here? Well, Jesus knew this is something that is to happen in redemptive history. He knew that the word was not yet supposed to get out. The Great Commission was going to go. We were supposed to be a proclaiming people. What he wanted Peter to do in that moment was to proclaim to all of the followers that that's the Christ so that they go hard after him. But Jesus, as it says in other passages, his time had not yet come. He knew that when the word got out, not only would people follow him, but also people would hate him. And the people who would hate him would kill him. That time had not yet come. Later on, we see the time has come. The word does get out. And what he says right now in this passage does come true. Don't let this fall lightly on you. He says what's going to happen before it happens. Okay? That's the God we serve. He has your future in his hands. Look at what he says, verse 22. The Son of Man must suffer many things. And be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes. And be killed and on the third day be raised. Their whole life would hinge on that message right there. Their life would be turned upside down. My life will never be the same because of that right there. A beautiful Savior who knew I couldn't save myself. He walked the path I obviously could not walk. A path of perfection. And he died the death that my sin deserved. And three days later he rose from the dead so that I would know there is power over sin, Satan, circumstances, and death. That is what he is able to do and I can trust him with my life. To save me from my sin and I can follow him with all that I am. That is the gospel. That's what he promised. And that's what he calls everyone to follow that kind of wonderful Savior. If you ever doubt his love, that message is the message that he loves you. But it's also a great, perfect example of self-denial. It's a perfect example of what he is about to ask the people of God to do. Deny himself. Jesus leaves glory, walks on earth, suffers and dies. He literally takes up his cross, which means ultimately embracing whatever path God has for him, the path of love, and he follows his father wherever his father leads. And so now he's not asking his followers to do what he hasn't already done. But he is asking us to do verse 23. If anyone, you hear that? Not just those who are in the room. If anyone would come after me, and this is the invitation, your greatest life is found in coming after me. So how do I do that? You deny yourself, take up your cross daily, And then you follow me. You surrender wherever I ask to go. What does it mean to deny? Deny means that I am dying to self-determination. I am saying, God, wherever you lead, I want to go. My yes is on the table. And you're saying, I'm releasing control. Not just in part, not just over this area and this area and this area, but over everything. And I'm saying, you need to be my boss. I want to live my life for you. 
And it is the replacement of those things, not just the denial, but the running after and wholehearted surrender. And then he begins to tell us what it looks like a little bit. Look at the Bible. Verse 24. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. He's using life in a couple of different ways here, and so we might need to throw in some adjectives to kind of understand what he's saying. For whoever would save his earthly life, that might be the adjective that we use, will lose his eternal life. That's the it. But whoever loses his earthly life for my sake will save his life eternally. You follow that? And so he begins to press in on a little more. Because when you hear that, it's like, what's that mean? What's that mean? So I'm supposed to just go pursue suffering? I'm supposed to die? The quicker I can die, the quicker I'm... Is that, am I supposed to take that into my hands? Is that how I'm supposed to roll? He says, here's what I mean. Verse 25. For, because, what does it profit a man or a woman, a person, if he or she gains the whole world and loses or forfeits his own soul, his very self. What does it mean when he says, gains the whole world? What does that mean? Can mean gains the whole world's affirmation or approval. If I get everyone to like me all the time, that sounds like a win. No more criticism, right? No more sense of people thinking I failed. No more letting people, that sounds a pretty good gig. But he knows that if you go after that, you will compromise what is needed to be faithful. You will end up giving away your very soul because one day you'll wake up from the dream and realize you'll always have a critic. You'll always have someone who's against you. You'll never be able to please everyone. There's no way. If Jesus wasn't able to, I'm going to give up on that pursuit. He says, gains the whole world. What else could it mean? Of course, it can mean material things. What if you gain all kinds of material possessions? You get the bigger car. You get the nicer job. The increase in salary. You get what you're desiring, and yet going after those things, you're leaving God behind. It's the sin of Israel. It says they forgot God and they pursued these other things. It's the issue of pursuit. He says, don't, don't, don't give up your soul for things that won't satisfy. Now, here's the question. Why would you go after things and why would you go after approval from people? What is the aim? It's because deep down you and I believe that that's where I will find happiness. That's going to be it. That's going to satisfy me. And Jesus is saying with these words, no, to try to amass as much as you can on this earth, you're giving away your very soul and you're losing the very joy you're pursuing. 
I want you to have full, forever joy with me. And so he says, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. He is asking our gaze to move from how much I can get in my arms to where am I going to be? Where is real home? To take up the mantra of Jim Elliot who says, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You can't lose eternal life. You can't lose your security in Christ. You can't lose his promises being for you. You can't lose the fact that he will never leave you nor forsake you. You can't lose the fact that he is always faithful and always doing good to you. You can't lose that. And if you have that, you can rejoice no matter what all is crumbling in around you. In some senses, you can be content. Because he is faithful. And so if you hear it, you begin to hear, he is not telling you to pull away from satisfaction and contentment and joy. He's actually pointing you to go into it deeper. He's saying, you're playing in the shallow end. You've only got water up to your ankles. You need to dive fully in and experience the refreshment of my waters. It's an invitation into depth of joy that cannot be bought cannot be manipulated, cannot be deceived your way into, and cannot be strong-armed. It's a relationship of surrender, of self-denial, and it leads you to joy. It's like if I told my kid, I've got a precious little six-year-old, his name's Bear. One thing that we love to do together, his name is Justice Bearcat, we call him Bear. And one thing we love to do together is play basketball. He's got this little Tykes basketball goal upstairs and we set it on this like bench thing and it makes it high enough for him to have to jump to slam it. He's really good at like the windmill and things like this. And so we love to go up and play ball. It's one of his favorite things to do with me and one of my favorite things to do with him. But what if he comes to me and he says, hey daddy, 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 can we go play basketball? And I say, no son, we can't. Instead, we've got to go out and, and help a neighbor. And he's like, Dad, why would you do this to me? This is basketball we're talking about. This is serious. Why would you do this to me? And I seem so cruel. No, son, you just need to get in the car and we have to go and we're going to go help someone. And so we go and the whole time, why? Why do we need to do this? I hate this. Now, this is not a true story. I'm just making this up as I go along, but it's in the manuscript, so I made it up before. So, we're traveling along, and we get out, and we help this neighbor, and it's really hot outside. My little boy's a hard worker, but he's sweating, and halfway through, it's just like, why didn't we do this? We just wanted to play basketball. Why can't we do this? And then I say, son, do you know where I'm taking you? You're taking me to their house and I'm playing. I don't like it at all. You know where I'm taking you? I'm going to take you to the pool. And where basketball was only going to be 30 minutes, we're now going to spend the rest of the day swimming together at the pool. Okay, good. And he's excited. Now, what was the path? He had to trust me. 
It was a sense that there was a point where it was painful and not enjoyable, but it led to something that was of deeper and more lasting joy. Although it's a temporal story, you cannot act as if self-denial is a path away from joy. It's actually a path into deeper joy. And the problem is we don't trust God on his promises. He says, he promises, I will lead you into better paths. I love you. I proved it by dying for you. Just trust me. I know it seems harder right now, but walk the path of self-denial. It will be a path of further, deeper contentment and peace and satisfaction. But here's the deal with self-denial, and I want you to hear this. I had to really process my own heart. It's a phrase I felt like the Lord gave me, though, and I think it's right. If there aren't times... When you aren't telling yourself no, then you are not following Jesus. If there are not times when you are not telling yourself no, meaning you must tell yourself no. If you're not telling yourself no, at some point you are not following Jesus. The path according to Jesus is a path of self-denial. It's a path of saying, I want to dive into this sin, but no, Jesus, you're better. If I didn't tell myself no, I would not run after Jesus. I would not run after the word. I would not give up on sin. I would never love anyone. Because I'm for me, and I would never follow his word. At the foundation of following Jesus is the commitment at times to say no to fleeting pleasures for better ones. It is the commitment to say no to our wayward desires for desires that align more wholly with him. It is the commitment to say yes to Jesus and to trust him more than we trust ourselves. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship found himself in 1945 in a prison awaiting his execution because he was leading a small Protestant movement and that he was seeking to uproot the Nazi regime. And in 1945, in a concentration camp in Flossenburg, he was hung, killed. But not before he had contributed to Christianity many sermons and many books, one of which was the cost of discipleship. And here's what he says about these verses right here, denying yourself and taking up your cross as a means of following Jesus. He says this, the cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. When he uses an image, a shocking image of taking up your cross, it is an image of sacrifice, an image of suffering. And he's saying the first suffering we will experience on our path of following Jesus is the abandonment of the attachments of the world. Now, I do have a question for you. The question is, 
how much do I deny myself? Right? How much is self-denial? Is it a certain size home? Is it living in a certain neighborhood? Is it attending a certain uh, events that are held at the church? What is the perfect amount of self-denial? Well, I think we need this foundation in order to answer that question. I do not deny myself and sacrifice in order that I might be accepted. I sacrifice because I'm already accepted in Christ. I do not deny myself in order that God might embrace me more. I sacrifice and deny because God has fully embraced me because of the death of his son. It's a totally different picture. Every other religion is the clamor for a God to capitulate to their good deeds for that God who is needy. Our God has no needs and he fully accepts us based upon the foundation of faith alone. So we therefore do not sacrifice and deny ourselves for acceptance, but out of acceptance, out of full love. And I saw it all week long. All week long in summer camp this week. These precious 80 plus volunteers were not here, I pray, and I saw it in many of their eyes and I talked to them so I know it's the characteristic of many of them. They were not here in order to be the Savior or in order to get saved. They were here because they are saved, because they are children, because they are loved, and therefore they have a message to give away to the world. But it took a lot of energy this week. Do I get an amen? Okay, thank you. Yes, that's right. There are some self-denying people at camp this week. They gave up their nights. They gave up energy. No financial gain. They gave up resources. They gave up brain power. They gave up the, the emotional energy of caring for those that were placed under their care. And it was sacrifice. And it was difficult. But just as Jesus promises, I want to be really clear, the sacrifice was worth it. Yes? There was joy. I heard laughter that filled my heart with such greater laughter even after I went home. I saw people connecting that don't normally connect. I heard people sharing stories that don't normally get to share stories with each other. I saw unity happen. I saw people who aren't able to proclaim Christ regularly to this community be able to do that. I saw this community feel loved and nurtured. Some people we've been longing to get into their homes or longing to talk to them and they show up here and we're able to engage them. So many things that we can praise God for because we were able to be here. The gospel was heard. People's lives were changed. I even talked to a woman who came Friday night for the celebration. And I said, thank you for entrusting your children to us. And we have loved caring for them. She said, it was so weird. My kids came home and they were telling me the story. They told me the stories of Jesus. And it was, they really impacted them. And these kids really learned it and knew it. You don't even know the ripple effects of sacrificial love. And that brings you joy. When God calls us to self-denial, it will be difficult. But it is a path towards joy. And may I say this. The 
temptation at this point. The temptation at this point, which God does not condone, is that we define our own righteousness built upon our self-denial. And then we look down upon others because they haven't denied as much as we have. Those of you who didn't come to summer camp, I did. Does that make me more godly than you? Some of you might think so. I don't think so. What makes you godly is to bow your heart down before the living God of the universe who says, you can add nothing to my brilliance and beauty. And you lay yourself out and you say, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. I need you, God. And then you say, Father, what do you have for me? What do you want for me? I want to follow you wherever you lead. I just want to be so soaked in his word that I hear his voice and I follow him on mission. For some of you, that meant you come to camp and you serve faithfully. For others, it meant that you were at home serving your family faithfully. For others, it meant that you were at work working long hours late at night and you were faithful. What faithfulness is, is the willingness to say, I need to deny myself. I must every single day take up my cross and say, Father, wherever you lead, I want to go and I follow you. That is godliness. And may he protect us from the self-righteousness of saying, Well, I have less, or I do this, and they don't, so I'm better, and you're worse. That will kill a church. We are unified because the Savior sacrificed it all, and we will never be able to compete with that. And so we must be faithful. Faithful to follow God. Now, what does that mean? Well, as one pastor said, some of you need to stop listening for a voice, and start following a verse. There's many verses in the scriptures that tell you what it means to follow Jesus. And you don't need permission to do that. His word shapes our relationships. It shapes how you spend your money. It shapes many times how you make decisions all over the place. There is two calls, one call as a Christian, that is love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the call for every single person. We must follow him. And following means listening to his word. And many of us are sorely confused because we are so far from God. We wouldn't know him if he stood in front of us and smacked us on the face and said, hey, wake up, wake up. We wouldn't even know it. That's not to shame you. It's to encourage you that our God holds his arms open and says, I'm a good shepherd and I love talking to you. But if you do this, it's hard to hear. I had trouble hearing myself just then. (laughs) Friends, deny yourself means that he is our standard and we don't compare ourselves to others. And so he invites us. He invites us to not only deny ourselves, but to take up our cross daily and to follow him. What does that look like to take up the cross daily? 
my prayer has been that before our feet hit the floor, that God would bring to our mind that he loves us, that he accepts us by faith alone, and he is our present help all day long. Wouldn't it be amazing if when we woke up, there was a sense of, oh God, help me. I need you. I need you. Come. I want you. It would be a mind set up on the Lord right when the eyes open. Pray for that. Ask God to bring himself to your mind so that you might follow him wherever he leads. Something that's really mistaken when this passage is taught is it is talked about as you must pursue sacrifice for the sake of sacrifice. That the more pain you incur, the more godly you are. I want you to make sure that you're clear. Jesus took the cross. Why? Because that was the call of love on his life. And when you walk the path of love, when that path has pain, that's what you're saying I'm willing to embrace. You don't say I'm going after the pain. You say I'm going after the love. And if I incur pain along that path, I'm willing to do it because my God is with me. Do you hear the difference? It's not sacrifice for sacrifice sake. Amen. It's not sacrifice for sacrifice sake. It is God, I want to go with you wherever you lead. And I know that if it led my Savior to a bloody cross, it will probably lead me to inconvenience and difficulty and strife. But my Savior says, I'll be with you. And it will lead to your ultimate joy. And so here's some verses I leave with you. As I was reading this week, I came across Psalm 94. And here's what I don't want us to miss. On a sermon like this, you can hear a lot of what you are supposed to do. But don't miss how he starts the passage. If anyone wants to come to me, follow me. You're going to a person. You're going to a savior. You're going to one who loves you. And this is who he is. Psalm 94. Verse 14 through 19, it says this. This is the one you follow. This is the one you ask to take you as you are and to take you wherever you need to go. It is the one who says this. For the Lord will not forsake his people and he will not abandon his heritage. He won't abandon you. Others might, but he will not. And he goes on to say in verse 17, if the Lord had not been my help, my soul would have lived in a land of silence. It means God is your help throughout your life. And if he were not my help throughout my life, I would have shriveled up. I would have shrunk into depression. I would have been very inward and I would have been quiet. But God was with me. When I thought, my foot slips. Oh no, I'm falling. This is too much for me to bear. It says, your steadfast love, O oh Lord, it held me up. You never let me go. You never loosened your grip even though everything around me was really hard. And then he says in verse 19, when the cares of my heart are many, my soul is anxious, I'm filled with fear, frustration, your consolations cheer my soul. You are attentive to my needs. You heard my pleas and you are with me in love. This is the kind of God who says, deny yourself daily, 
Be willing to sacrifice whatever on the path towards love and follow me. That will be the greatest path of joy. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you are worth following. Thank you that I am not measured by how I measure up to someone else. But God, you have called each one of us on a path, a path that is to be obedient to you and a path that calls us to follow you wherever, whenever, and however you lead. Father, I ask that you would pry our fingers off of our lives and that we would put our yes on the table. And that yes would be something we fight for every single day. Father, I pray that you would use doctors and nurses and teachers. I pray that you would use social workers and you would use nonprofits. I pray that you would use realtors and I pray that you would use uh, janitors and landscapers. I pray that you would use all of our people exactly where they are to not only deepen their love, but use them as instruments in your hands to love those around them. I pray that they would follow you where they are and that they would make much of your name as they go. Father, please. I pray that we would be a desperately praying, Christ-confessing, self-denying, cross-embracing people. Please get glory from this church, unified for your name. Please, Father, do it. We're going to take the Lord's Supper, and as we take the Supper, it'll just be a time when we can confess our sin and confess the wonders of our Savior to save us and make us new. It's also a time when you can share your struggles and the difficulties, the hard things, the confusing things. But it's always those two things. I'm a sinner. I need you to save me. And you are a good, sufficient Savior. If you can't say those things, this meal is not for you. But the time is for you to stop and to just ask God to change you from the inside out. But wherever you are in your journey, I pray that what God leads you to is repentance and an embrace of Jesus and a following him wherever he leads. So when you're ready, there's two tables in the front, one in the back. You can get the bread and the cup and go back to your seat and spend that time in prayer asking God to do a work in your heart. Let's enjoy the supper together.